Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Hallie Perry. Today, we welcome Joshua Moore, who will be reading from his memoir, Model Citizen, published by FSG, and Gina Frangello, who will be reading from her memoir, Blow Your House Down, published by Counterpoint Press. Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We are open every day, Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., Saturday and Sunday, 10 a.m. to 8 p.m., for curbside pickup and masked in-store browsing. Shop online at www.skylightbooks.com, and you can check out our upcoming events on our Crowdcast page, crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks. Now, on to the show. Joshua Moore is the author of the memoir Sirens and of several novels, including Damascus, which the New York Times called, quote, beat poet cool. His novel, All This Life, won the Northern California Book Award. He is the founder of Decant Editorial. Gina Frangello is the author of Every Kind of Wanting, A Life in Men, Slut Lullabies, and My Sister's Continent. Her short fiction, essays, book reviews, and journalism have been published in Plowshares, The Boston Globe, Chicago Tribune, HuffPost, Fence, Five Chapters, Prairie Schooner, Chicago Reader, and many other publications. She lives with her family in the Chicago area. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having Thank, us. Thanks, Thank Helen. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here. Um, we're going to get started today with a reading and then followed by a conversation. So let's hear some work. <laughs> Thanks, Holly. I'm going to read a very, very short excerpt from Model Citizen. It's about halfway through the, the book, although you don't think, really think you need to know anything for, for it to work. So thanks again for the invitation. Seeing as how you and me are grafting and growing together, diluting our senses, my heart becoming yours, my mind seducing your set of perceptions, holding them, well, not hostage exactly, because that makes it sound sort of adversarial, and we are the furthest thing from enemies. On the contrary, we are slowly becoming each other, which makes the whole hostage idea goddamn ridiculous. You can't hold yourself hostage, that's impossible. Leave us alone, we are just two consenting adults, dissolving any boundaries between our brains. 
watching them form a new murky world, wasabi melting in soy sauce, you dissolving in me, us a whole new vibrant animal. And so if I told you about my motorcycle assisted suicide, you wouldn't hold it against me, right? I mean, no way, you couldn't because you're me, because we're the same and you can't schadenfreude yourself. But before we had this melting moment, before we came together to share this beautiful and terrifying thing called community, I was coming out of a blackout in Tahoe. Now, did my binge start in Tahoe? No, it did not. Did I have any idea how I got to Tahoe? Not so much. Coming out of a blackout while you're conscious is, well, disconcerting. That's the nicest way to put it. Normally I'd black out and come to the next morning in my bed or someone else's. The first thing I always did, run my index finger over my front teeth, making sure I still had all my chompers. In Tahoe, I came out of the blackout sitting at a bar. This wasn't the first time it had happened to me by any stretch. And I'd like to think I handled it like a trained professional leaning over to the guy next to me and saying, excuse me, kind sir, can you please tell me where I might be currently located on this marvelous planet that we call home? I doubt that though. I remember needing to throw up. Remember seeing everyone's snow hats and snow jackets and that the bar was scattered with everyone's gloves, which looked like dead bats lying there. I remember thinking, now that's strange. People in San Francisco wearing winter gear? Are we in some kind of severe cold snap? The urge to throw up cranked to desperate wretches. So I ran out the bar's front door into a snowstorm and puked a fine puddle, landing like a roar shark blot on the parking lot's white powder. The roads were empty, the whistle of wind, the only noise. I peeked at the bar and it's warmth, then up to its sign. That was how I solved one of the looming mysteries. The sign said something about being the place for Tahoe's locals. It must've been a fairly impromptu decision to roll from SF to the mountains because I wasn't dressed for the weather. I had on jeans and a hoodie, stood shivering next to the Rorschach puke, watching the snow fall on the near empty parking lot. And that was when I saw him drive out of the snowstorm. Actually, I heard his gruff engine first, then spotted the arc of white light in the distance, halos of wonder playing on the falling snow. His headlight felt like a search party coming to rescue me. Finally, I made out the motorcycle emerging from the snow. He was obviously some snow mirage, something from my shame brain bringing this motorcycle man to life to carry me away, to exercise these galloping demons. He was a priest, I could tell. He could shuck my poison. I hoped he would pass by so close, I could feel his tenderness and love. Hoped he might shout some wise words as he sped by, something like, life seems sadistic, brother, but happiness can swerve in at strange times, just like my headlights slicing through the snowfall. Thank you, I'd say, I'm lost. And then he'd answer me, you were chosen, specifically chosen for this life. 
and I'd hear every word as though his mouth was inches from my ear, despite the speed and snarl of his machine. He'd say, you were one sperm racing toward an egg, competing with billions of your brothers and sisters for this world, and here you are. Here you are, motherfucker, and aren't we all rancid miracles? Obviously, I didn't get to the part where I ask him if I can ride on the back of his motorcycle without my shirt on to commit suicide. <laughs> but you'd have to read the book to get to that fine installment. <laughs> Thanks, Hallie. All right, I guess I'm next. Um, so I'm just going to start right from the beginning. And the first section of the book is called The Story of A, begins with a quote, the lie which elates us is dearer than a thousand sober truths. And it's Anton Chekhov misquoting Pushkin. A is for adulteress, but you knew that. There's virtually no history of literature without the adulteress. Anna Karenina, Emma Bovary, Edna Pontlier, Hester Prynne, Daisy Buchanan, Molly Bloom. The adulteress throws herself in front of a train, runs over her husband's lover with a car, walks into the ocean intent on dying without a care for her children. A is for adulteress, agent of ruin, woman. A is for accused. Researchers at Cardiff Metropolitan University revealed that when there has been infidelity in a marriage, most wives tend to blame the other woman, whereas most husbands see their cheating wife as the guilty party. Basically, whoever dropped dead in the broom closet, the adulteress did it. A is for author. Allow me to reveal the A on my breast. For the sake of this narrative, my name might as well be A. Once a woman becomes an adulteress, her other identities, mother, daughter, friend, editor, writer, teacher, become largely invisible to others, as irrelevant as the clothing she horishly, treasonously shed. A is for asshole. There is no slur for men to match the equivalent of mistress or even other woman. Philanderer doesn't have the same punch and is sex nonspecific. Cuckold denotes a man who is being cheated on. A player or even a dog can be single or married. An asshole can be the guy who took your parking space at Trader Joe's as well as the man who fucked your wife. There are no names specifically for men who, make, who break their promises to women. A is for age. For the first time in documented human history, among adults ages 18 to 29 who have ever been married, a general social survey reports that women are marginally more likely than men to be unfaithful. The survey also found that infidelity rates increase into middle age for both men and women, and that contrary to both social and literary stereotypes, women reach their highest levels of infidelity in their 60s. A is for analysis. While wives initiate almost 70% of divorces, the researcher Michael Rosenfeld recently made the surprising discovery that no similar gap between the sexes or any gap at all exists between the percentage of breakups initiated by women and men living together without marriage. Rosenfeld also found that although married women have long reported lower levels of satisfaction with relationship quality than married men, those in non-marital relationships reported equal levels of quality. These results, Rosenfeld said, quote, support the feminist assertion that some women experience heterosexual marriage as oppressive or uncomfortable. A is for adultery. In the United States, adultery remains illegal across 17 states. 
In Illinois, where A first kissed her lover, the wronged spouse can even sue the cheater's lover for alienation of affection. In Massachusetts, where A and her lover reinstigated their affair 2.0 after having been broken up for nine, nearly nine months, adultery is a felony, theoretically punishable by up to life in prison. A is for old, strike. A is for hag, strike. A is for crone, strike. A is for ancient. Various studies using extensive data from online dating sites have revealed that women's perceived attractiveness by men hits its highest point at the age of 18 and declines steadily thereafter, Elizabeth Birch, and that the peak age of women's attractiveness is somewhere around 22 or 23, Christian Rudder. According to Rudder, co-founder of OKCupid, younger is better and youngest is best of all. For men, by contrast, attractiveness seems to increase steadily with age, peaking somewhere between 46 and 50. Given these facts, one might wonder what irrational force could possibly have prompted A to believe that she still matters enough for all this fuss to begin with, for all this inconveniencing of other upstanding people who had expectations of and plans involving her. Just look at the way she's carrying on, as though she honestly doesn't realize she is statistically unfuckable anyway. A is for the audacity of her. A is for animal testing. In Esther Perel's The State of Affairs, the author indicates that while rates of infidelity are on the incline, public compassion for adulterers is not. According to a 2017 Gallup poll, Americans have become more relaxed about most things sexual, from premarital to teen to gay sex, but adultery remains condemned at higher rates than abortion, animal testing, or euthanasia. A is for Alice. A's mother Alice was once told by A's father that she should take a lover because A's father was no longer interested in sex, at least with his wife, and could not satisfy her. Although she had two opportunities that A knows of, altruistic Alice nonetheless remained faithful to her asexual husband even past his death. A is for anti-heroin. Um, this is not that kind of book. <laughs> Oh, I love that, Gina. <laughs> Thank you. Yours is awesome. And that is that's like is that built as a prologue or is that chapter? Um, yeah, it, it goes on from there, um, and it is sort of a prologue because obviously the rest of the book, I'm I'm not a, I'm mean, myself. At the end of um, at the end of this one, it shifts from from a to i, and then it goes into the rest of the book. I mean, the the, the cadences are so striking; it's almost reads like a prose poem in the best way. Thank you. Yeah, it was getting... weird because it was one of those incidents where um, the notes became the book, which is something that Rob always <laughs> says is like the notes are the book. Um, I was basically researching things for the book and I was taking notes. And when I was done, I realized like, this is, this is the story right here. So I did that one. I've, I've never heard Rob say that the notes become the book. Can you say more about that? Yeah, it was really like when he was writing his memoir, Liar, like he would write these notes about things he wanted to write about and wanted to include in, in the memoir. And essentially, you know, a lot of them ended up basically, because a lot of the sections were quite short, the notes ended up largely being the book and then he revised it. But, um, but yeah, so I found that to be much more true when writing nonfiction than when writing fiction, you know, where you're just like, you know, She's got to meet Jeffrey. And it's like that. <laughs> <not a book. laughs> so. Right. 
It was interesting too, when I was thinking about us doing kind of a, a podcast together via Zoom, which is obviously like such a digital ecosystem. It re actually reminded me of how our relationship started. It's like no, no one, no one that. knows how long that we've we've known no, each other. Should we tell them the story? It's crazy. I've been I published Josh when he was something like twenty four years old. So totally. I mean, we go way back. It's insane. He was a baby. <laughs> <laughs> I was editing a magazine called Other Voices back then, and I don't remember how many times we published you, Josh, but it was it was a few um, in, in there. So. Yeah, I think too. Um, I you know it's got has been that was still the late '90s, so that was a mm -hmm. long that was a long time ago. But the story, the first story that you published of mine, was the germ for what is my favorite book I've ever written, the novel Damascus. Yes, um, yes. And that okay. that story and you know the the extension of the novel wouldn't have existed without your super smart notes. Thank you. I mean, that story is a stunner and the book, of course, is magnificent. And, and I don't know if I ever even asked you this. Um, are you a, a, a Jason Isbell fan at all? The, I mean, I know, I know his solo music more than I know his band's music. So he has a song called Elephant. Yes, and, I know the song. Um, and I always think of Damascus every time I, I hear that song. That might be the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> I live to please. <laughs> so, no, it's true. I'm basically like, this is Josh's novel in a song. So, Love yeah. it. I just think it's so cool that, you know, 20 years ago is like total strangers who just happen to have this kind of passion uh, in common. We started in affinity and like, here we are, Jesus Christ, right? It's fucking 25 years later and we're still oh super pals. I love that. It, it is 25 years later. It, well, I mean, so I edited Other Voices. I started, you know, just reading for the magazine in something like 1996 and took it over in, in 98. And it's like, I seriously kind of feel like everyone I know in my entire life now I met through other places. <laughs> I mean, including my husband, you know, it's like I, I the, the people I've worked for, the people I've published since, like, it's just like, it, it's become my whole life ecosystem. So yeah. Well, I know that you and I both wanted to talk a little bit about structure today because we're both such nerds. <laughs> um, and like most most uh, hubs won't let us get into something so like nuanced, yes. new, nuanced and granular, but Skylight is willing to indulge us. I Thank think both of our Emily. books have crazy structures to it. Like, why don't you tell us about how you've organized and curated your memoir? So, Basically, um, the memoir started as much more of a disparate essay collection. Um, it, the, the pieces were not in order um, in terms of when they happened. They also, you know, they were all sort of related to each other, but there wasn't sort of one story arc in part because they were, you know, all out of order. And they didn't start out actually being... Um, as formally playful as they ended up being. They were all kind of more just straight essays. Um, but basically after the book had already sold to Counterpoint, I went to Ragdale um, for two weeks, which is a writing retreat, like residency. Right. And I just started reading it because Dan Smetanka had told me, you know, there's a lot of repetitions in the different pieces. Like, let's make sure we don't have a lot of repetition. 
And when I started reading it, I realized that, you know, it's sort of when you look at things as, as individual essays, self-contained essays, you kind of have to explain everything from scratch every single time. And so once I took all of that out, I realized, well, the pieces really can't be out of order anymore either, because you've got to explain <laughs> it first. And then each bit of knowledge grows on each other. So even though each section still has kind of a self-contained arc of sorts. And in that sense, retains this kind of memoir and essays feeling. Um, the knowledge builds on it, on itself much more cumulatively um, and has more the feel of, of like one whole memoir. So, and you, yeah. I mean, you, you were in such good hands with Dan as an editor. I mean, I did a couple novels with, with Dan as well. So I know he's, he's got like this black belt ninja eye. But can you does. kind of can you kind of tell us like what he brought to the project in terms oh, of God, like yeah. his organic ideas to elevate the art? Definitely. So, I mean, I worked with Dan on my last book as well. And I mean, really, the Dan fan club vibe is strong here. <laughs> I think he's just the greatest editor. I, I love him so much. And so definitely he wanted the book to have a more holistic feel. I mean, he bought it the way that it was because he'd worked with me before. He knew that I could revise. I had re right. revised the novel I worked with him on during chemo. So I guess he had faith in me that I would, you know, <laughs> I, I'd, I'd get it together. Um, but so, you know, he, he said like, there is a narrative here and you know, we want to tell the narrative in a way that the writer, uh, the reader always knows where they are. And so basically putting the pieces in order, getting rid of the repetition, I really realized that some of the pieces covered the same ground, which is interesting because as an editor of short story collections that were sometimes kind of novels and stories, I encountered that a lot. Like once something, once all the repetitions were taken out, sometimes two different stories just covered the same emotional ground and you had to choose between the better one. And so I had right. written and published a lot of essays about my parents in particular, and some of them had to go here because they were achieving the same thing. And then in the gaps, I was able to kind of play with form more like the one that I just read. And Dan was really helpful where that was concerned because he was helping me sort of understand when I was playing with form where I was still advancing the narrative versus where, you know, the experimentation was no longer narrative. And so a few right. of those got cut and then a few of them got added. So well, I think what's nice about uh, someone like Dan that you've already built trust with is that you know that when he's supportive of the ideas, it's always going to be in the book's best interest, you know, like yeah. in lesser hands, an editor might try to steer you away from the book that you want to write into right. the book that he or she wants you to write. And when you work with someone of, of Dan's ethics and talent level, you know that his suggestions is just all about making the book better, which is how it should be across it's the so, board. But, yeah, it's so true. I mean, like what I wanted to say, particularly about him that I really, really appreciated is that you know, I wanted the book to be sort of a hybrid of memoir and cultural criticism. I didn't want it to only be a lens of me. I wanted it to be a lens of the culture at large. Yeah. And I was very worried when the book was, you know, was going out that no one was going to be down with that, you know, that everyone was going to be like, you're not Susan Sontag, honey, like just write a book. <laughs> and Dan was basically like, let's lean hard into that angle, like, like go crazy. And I, that, that was just the most 
fun, wonderful thing that ever happened to me was getting to embrace that side of it. And it was the, he kind of gave you the, the permission to let the work feel more whatever you wanted it to evolve into. Exactly. That it didn't just have to be sort of a traditional memoir. Um, you know, the way I feel women are all often corralled into writing certain types of memoirs. And, and Dan was sort of like, you know, no, you can, you know, you can basically geek out, you can put in, you know, French feminist theory, you can put in stats about, you know, the legal system and, and archaic medical treatments and, you know, hysteria and all of these different things that I'd been interested in for years. And then in fact, my novels really skirt around, but I could never fully delve in. And he was like, go to town. So yeah. Was well, I might, I might argue too that in 2021, I don't know that you can tell a memoir straight anymore. You know, I kind of feel like at, at this point, we want to be acknowledging like the zeitgeist complications, how history is going to play a role in the present that we're all dealing with right now. So I don't know. I, I wonder if the hermetically sealed memoir is kind of going the way of the dodo. I wouldn't um, mind that. I mean, yeah. as an as an editor, like, so I'm the creative nonfiction editor at uh, the LA Review of Books. And before that, I was the Sunday editor at The Rumpus. And in both of those uh, places, I mean, obviously, as CNF editor, I publish only nonfiction. At The Rumpus, I published mainly nonfiction. And one of my most common reasons for not taking essays that are beautifully written and that, you know, really have an important story to tell is when there just isn't a lens outside the author, that there isn't a yeah. connection to how this matters to sort of the larger culture. And I don't know that book publishing is quite caught up with that entirely yet. I mean, I think it's it's going that direction, but I think, you know, there still is this idea, you know, I mean, how can you say it? It's It wasn't true of Dan, so it was, I got lucky, but there is this sense of, you know, make this down to the lowest common denominator where, you know, everyone is going to be equally interested in it. And <laughs> that's, I think that takes a lot of the life and potential out of a lot of books. Um, so it, it, it was, it was great you know, not what, to do that. What's cool about what you're saying too, is it really acknowledges how a memoir should really sound like how, how that person talks or how that person mm -hmm. thinks, you know, like I, I've lived a very punk rock life. And so when I wrote this book, like I wanted it to sound like a punk rock song. Like I left mistakes in the memoir that I would totally have cleaned up if it was a novel. But I wanted it, to, I wanted to kind of modify or mimic this like a bad brain song, That's right? Fantastic. Where it's like the guitar's out of tune and the drummer's on cocaine. So he's speeding up and slowing down. It's just the third week of the tour. So the singer's hoarse. I think like if you, if you, if you uh, aim for that symbiosis between form and content, running it through right. the persona of the auteur herself, I think that's where the magic happens, don't you? I, I fully agree with that. And I mean, I think, you know, you're one of the things about your writing. I mean, I remember reading the first story you submitted to other voices, like even though whatever it was so long ago that it's hard to believe I could remember anything. But I, <laughs> you know, but I remember the experience of reading your work. And and one of the things that always struck me about your work, and I feel has as only gotten stronger over time, is an incredible intimacy like you have an extremely intimate tone in your writing and you know there's none of that kind of like distance where 
the author is kind of almost pretending that they're not writing. There's right. a there's a real sense of like you as the storyteller bringing someone in, and you were very much. And this was in the '90s that I first published you. Like you're not afraid to go into really emotional territory, which in the '90s often emotion was mistaken for sentimentality, right? And was really being just nixed out of stories and and films and everything. It was sort of like everyone was supposed to be glib and flat and you know you weren't supposed to acknowledge like hurt or love or any kind of sentiment and your work managed to really go there in these incredibly artful intimate ways and that was back when you were writing you know just fiction but your nonfiction, I think does that even more so. Oh thank you for saying that I mean I think you know when I'm writing I want it to sound like I'm sitting on the bar stool next to you, whispering it into your ear. So I'm like, I'm, I'm actively working to make it the most visceral experience that I possibly can. So that's gonna make you, you know, privy to those mechanisms of love and joy. But it also means that I'm gonna take you into those squalid emotional ecosystems that you probably don't wanna go into as well. <laughs> um, you know, I, it's funny that you mentioned that because there's Charlie Baxter has this amazing way to describe the word visceral uh, that I kind of use as my North Star when I'm putting scenes and chapters together. And he uses the analogy of a playhouse. And he says the word visceral means that you're sitting in the front row of the play and the actors are so passionately involved in disseminating their lines that their spit is hitting you in the face. And like, I, I think about that all the time when I'm writing narrative, you know, it's are really they true? Yeah. Are they in the front row or are they in row eight or fuck? Are they all the way back in row 45? Right. And how can I close that gap? How that can distance. I close that proximity? And it's such, I mean, that's really, it's really difficult because there's always, you know, you do want to feel the spit. And I, I, I stood up in line for something like, 10 hours once to watch Daniel Day-Lewis play Hamlet in London so that I could be spit on by him. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, um, but, but it's true. It's like, you know, when you're particularly like, so I write about a lot about illness, pain, you know, death, sex, all that you do too, you know, all, all these things that are really physical. They're really rooted in the body. And it's very hard to close that gap when you're writing about the body. There's this inherent distance between language and physical experience. Like you can write about having a headache, but no matter what you do, you can't give the reader a headache unless I guess your writing is utter shit, you know, but, but so, you know, so yeah, plenty I'm always of writers str- have given me a headache. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm always struggling too for that same thing that you're talking about. It's just like, how do you just get the gap as thin as possible between yeah. the words, you know, because the words are our medium. They're all we've got like between the words and the bodies. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, to mix my metaphors, I wonder if it's a matter of like, writing from outside to inside or rather than writing from inside to out. I kind of feel like both of us are sort of like the latter schools of thought. Like we want to write from inside the body and that gives the audience the idea like what Flannery O'Connor used to call experienced meaning. Like, I'm not going to tell you about this. I'm going to make you experience this in this like claustrophobic, complicit, beautiful way. Uh, I think if, if that's like the 
that's what we reach toward, even if we fail. I mean, if that's the North Star, that will kind of get us to where we want to go. I, I totally agree. I mean, I talk to my students about that all the time, you know, and I also talk about the fact that that can be done in multiple points of view. You know, it's like, yeah. obviously in a memoir, usually you're using first person, but, you know, no matter what you're writing, fiction, nonfiction, and your nonfiction can have experimental points of view too, if you choose, but that, sure. you know, that the idea that you can only do that in first person is very erroneous. And I think a thing that a yes. lot of uh, new writers assume that if they want to have that intimacy, if they want to have like that writing from the inside out, that the only way they can achieve voice and intimacy is to do first person. Yep. And, you know, what I find is that a lot of third person writing can be unnecessarily distanced, like where you're describing something that you're looking at from very far away, but it can be just as much from the inside out, yeah. you know? And so I'm always thinking about how different points of view work to, to position, you know, where, like, what are we looking at from where? And, and what we're, what audience are, are willing to go with in 2021 too? Like we're, we're dealing more often than not with, with sophisticated readers who like understand the complexities of, of narrative. So yeah. like in my, my novel, in my memoir, like there's a talking duffel bag, there's a talking <laughs> dog, like there's a Nazi doctor who's been dead for a, a hundred years. There are, there's a magical bicycle that takes me from Phoenix, Arizona to San Francisco. And like, that's the way that I see the world. So again, like we right. want the art to be a complete reflection of that very idiosyncratic filter, that how way that one mind processes the world going on around her. Absolutely. I mean, that that's exactly it because it's like, you know, I think when you look back at people trying to write stream of consciousness, like people were trying to mimic the way the mind works. But, right. you know, we were just talking about Pam Houston uh, before, before this, um, before this, but she talks, you know, in, in corn maze about this a lot. Um, it's, it's really true. Yeah. I don't know that story. I guess I'll, I'll read it after we're done here. Uh, oh, corn maze is a brilliant craft essay. It's, yeah. it's fantastic, but, um, it, it, it's it really is I think one of the closest content form pieces that I've ever read oh, awesome. um, and in it you know she essentially she talks about craft in the form of a personal essay and the personal essay does exactly what the craft essay is talking about oh, but I love really it. slyly you know so a lot of um I teach it constantly and a lot of readers won't pick up on certain things the first or the second or the third time but you just keep reading <laughs> it and finding more ways that she echoed what she's talking about in in the piece love it I'll check it out later today the other thing I wanted to ask you about uh constructing the book I think like writers are typically their next project is always gonna kind of be in reaction to what they have just been stuck investigating. Like I know personally, like I need a break <laughs> from talking about my own narcissism slash solipsism. Oh God um, help me, yes. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm feeling the tug back to the fiction side of things. Where do you think you're going creatively? I, I feel likewise. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm in the process. I have a few essays in the work. Um, you know, because it's, it's the book season and so forth. Right. But, um, 
but no, I'm I'm plotting a, a couple different novels in my head. And it's always that way, I'm sure for you too, like where you're kind of, you're writing before you're writing, like you're pre-writing yeah. and, and you start to know, like I'm a binge writer. I don't write every day. I don't write like even necessarily every month, um, but I know it's time to start when I just kind of can't shake thinking right. about the characters and I'm imagining, you know, what their responses would be to everything that I'm seeing and et cetera. So, so I'm starting to get there where it's like, I, I need to write fiction again, which is interesting because um, I wrote the memoir largely, I mean, for, for many reasons, but one of them was that I was incapable of writing fiction at that time. Like I, I kind of had to write through this firewall of this memoir in order to get to fiction again. And so, you know, I, it's sort of thrilling that, you know, that it seems to have worked and that I'm back in that, yeah. in that mindset. And you it. too, huh? So you're planning, you're planning another novel? I think so. I mean, I haven't, I haven't, FSG already has my next novel under contract. Oh, fantastic. Um, I, so I started this book way back in 2012 uh, about the first female poker dealer in Gold Rush, San Francisco. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I finished that finally. I mean, I'd never written historical fiction before, and it took me forever to get it right. Um, I got some some really amazing advice from a historical writer in San Francisco named Janice Newman, um, who told me she was reading something of mine. And she said, you're writing about this like it's the past. Like th to these people, this is the vibrant present. That's, um, that's and that that fucking changed everything Gina like well, suddenly that's... like my, my feet hit the ground and I was before I was kind of hovering observing um, I was like looking down on the material and I wasn't able to yet to look at the material in the eyeballs it's and what we like, were just once... talking about like writing from the inside out you yeah. know and it's like you have to inhabit wherever you are you know sure. so sure. yeah that makes total sense and I can't wait but... to read that because I mean I remember hearing your idea for that well, was, what was funny about it is because my agent at the time, I was just coming off of the bar trilogy and he was like, you can't write another bar book, man. Like you can't, you can't do it. So then I was like, hmm, what would be my work around here? What if I write a bar book? It's set in the old West. <laughs> yeah. Does that work? <laughs> They're wearing cowboy hats. Is that a different <laughs> book? It's <laughs> awesome. It's yeah, basically just like Damascus in the old West. <laughs> do you feel like, I mean, you know, even independent of what, you know, your editor said, like your, your agent, do you feel sort of like once you've written a memoir that in a sense, it's like a, a bit of closure of a lot of the material that you were dealing with in fiction for many years and, and kind of like now feeling ready to go in it in, sort of a radically different direction like my, my husband Rob who's also a writer um and I talk about that a lot like we both both of our fifth books were memoirs and you know in a sense you end up going into the themes that you've right. been dealing with that, that have been your obsessions your whole life your whole writing yeah. life you know and I feel like it marks the end of a certain point of my career and and that the things that are now interesting me are very different than what I was writing about before. It could very well be, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't maybe don't have as much self-clarity to know that about myself. Like, like I kind of like the idea that I'm going to, if they'll allow me to keep publishing them, I like these skinny little memoirs. 
Um, like this only takes the story up until my daughter was five. You know, she's almost she's almost eight now. So there's like this three years that I would love to write about. Some crazy stuff has happened. Um, so I think I will I will continue to do like little things like that if people will allow me to keep writing those books. That's fantastic. Uh, but I I don't know that that my preoccupations are going to change. Like I think there are certain artists. Like I think David Lynch has made the same film eight times. Oh yeah, like, I mean definitely. I, I just I just like that film. So I mean, the, flame, the, the Flaming Lips have written the same song thirty times. I just like that song. Well, Kandera says that too. Like that, you basically maybe you have three, you know, central obsessions that you write about your your whole life, yeah. and and I'm sure that that will continue to be true in in certain ways that I'm not yet aware of, you know. Right. But yeah. But yeah, you My, know uh, what you what you were saying. It's like I mean that that idea of these sort of slim memoirs that are about a very certain thing it just right. makes me think about the work of Sarah Manguso for example I mean absolutely she, you know she is very good at just like distilling like I'm going to write about this thing and one of the th things I love about her besides just that she's brilliant and I love all her books is totally. that you, she's a really good example of how I mean memoir is a very curated thing it's a it's a very different thing from autobiography or you know a diary and yeah. I think sometimes like audiences are increasingly aware of that but not always aware of that and and the way that you know you can visit a different subject and that whole swaths of your life from other books or other you know fascinations or obsessions don't even play here you Absolutely. know like Absolutely. some of my best friends in the world are not even mentioned in this book, you know, because it's sure. not what it's about. Yep. No, I always think about it in terms of a, like an, like a, a certain very obvious epoch. Like that, that, that's pretty short. <clears throat> so for in, in Sirens or in the first half of Model Citizen, the book only covers two months. Like it, it starts on the morning of my third stroke. And it ends two months later when I have this crazy heart surgery to save my life, which by the way, didn't work, which is what the rest of the book is about. <laughs> so we only have this two month framing device. So the reader always has something that she recognizes to return to. Mm -hmm. But in the midst of that, like we're gonna be hopping in our time machine all over the place and it's 81 and it's 93 and it's 77 and all. So it makes it this ambitious nonlinear artifact but you can always orient the reader because she always has this, this point to return to. Right, right, right. Well, where you're telling the story from is kind of everything. Absolutely, absolutely. And I wonder too, the, uh, you're talking about where you're telling the story from. That's an interesting observation too, because there's always at least two versions of the writer in a memoir, right? There's <laughs> like somebody who's like enduring it and then there's the person who's retrospectively looking back yes, and that person absolutely. can offer context and asides, but that person can also totally fuck the book up. That's so so true. I, I'm, just so, I'm just so curious, how did you handle the retrospective narrator in such a way that she was helping you tell the story rather than fucking up the story? It, it's really interesting because I mean, you know, I, I don't believe like some 
people believe that you can't write about things when you're in the heat of them and that you always need distance. But I, do I don't believe, believe that either. You know, I believe very strongly, though, that there'll be really different books, you know, that 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 distance changes things. Yes. Um, you know, Nabokov says memory is revision, you know, and it's like, but it's also analysis. It's like we have kind of I don't want to say hindsight is 2020 because I don't think we ever really have 2020 vision on our own lives. But, but I do feel like, you know, you see certain things clearly about yourself that you didn't see in the moment that you were in the heat of things. And so I think for me, um, you know, being able to connect my story to a lot of larger things was was important to me, but also being able to look at myself sort of as a character, looking at right. myself, not just as the person caught up in all of these things, who's kind of living their plot and has no idea they're a character, but <laughs> you know, that, that now, you know, there was me looking at me and that the minute I put that person on the page, in a sense, she ceases to be exactly me. She becomes yep. the character of me. And, you know, so, I mean, that sounds maybe a little convoluted, but I think it was really useful for me to have that future bench post of where I was looking at the story from yeah. because it kept me aware that there was no way to get everything about myself in an exact replica of myself onto the page. And right. that I had to look at myself with kind of the same ruthlessness that you would a character. And I think I you it. do that. I mean, all, you know, I think you do that totally because I'm going to read Sirens. And so I know that that's something you're really good at as well. Well, I, in my work, I'm never looking for clarity. Like I'm, I'm trying to intentionally destabilize the oh, art. Right. And I'm trying to make the reader feel as complicit in the action and, and the decision making <laughs> in the book as I can possibly make her feel. Uh, and then to speak to what you're saying about distance, just to argue the other side, I wrote the first draft of this between, or excuse me, during that two month epic mm-hmm. between my third stroke and the surgery, right. because I wanted to write it in this like zero fox never pull a punch, never hedge a bet way, because I was convinced I was gonna die on the operating table. Absolutely. And because Ava was only 18 months old at the time, uh, and my father was this marvelous liar. You know, like he died when I was pretty young and I only knew this persona. Um, And so one of the things that I ache about is the fact that he never trusted me enough to like truly reveal who he was. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I intentionally overcorrected with my kid. I would be like, I didn't get anything. I was obfuscated for his entire true story. Right. Well, here you go, baby. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to give her like the warts and all version of who her old man was during my short time here. Uh, and then she can sift through that and do with that what she wants to. But it's like, I wanted the book to read like a love letter to her. That's, that's really beautiful. I mean, I think that it does. It's really, that's, and like you, I did a lot of the drafting while I was in the thick of things. And I, at that point, had no idea I was writing a memoir. Like I had a vague idea that I was going to write an essay collection about my parents at some point, but I was writing this other stuff kind of in secret as I was going through it. And, you know, you see the connections later and, you know, that's, 
and that's really what the where the structure to bring it all wrap full circle exactly I mean, that's why that's why architecture and structure is often the last thing to reveal itself to the artist totally like i i have you know graduate students and clients all the time that think like this is how my memoir is going to be structured this is how i'm going to organize it and it's like it, that's fine if you recognize that that's simply a system of hypotheses and the, the person who doesn't care about your hypotheses is your fucking book. <laughs> yes. yes. I mean, that's why the, the, the last thing written is often the first, you know, yeah. I mean, like the first chapter is often the thing you have to return to and completely rewrite once the book is over because you had no idea what the book was going to be. Um, you know, the part that I just read was one of the last things written in the book, even though it opens right. the book. It always reminds me of that probably apocryphal quote attributed to E.M. Forster that a, you know, a critic asked him what his new book was about while he was in the middle of drafting it. And Forster says, how do I know what I think till I see what I say? You know, it's like, we kind of got to, we got to know where the landing spot is and then we can reverse engineer and make sure that we're scattering the right clues and curating things in the right sequence. I don't know if you just saw the piece that Betsy Crane published on Air Light, um, yep. but yes, from I mean, her title of her memoir is "This Story Will Change," and right. I I love the way that she plays with that idea of how time and distance constantly change and evolve the story. You know, you write a book and seven months later, you'd write a different book, you know, right. and, and it just keeps going that way, but the book stays where it is, you know, so. I read a, a draft of a memoir of hers probably, you know, eight or nine years ago. Uh, so obviously it would have changed a lot, assuming she's using some of that to infuel, to fuel this new project. Uh, but she writes like such an angel. I would read just about anything that she puts out. I, I'm with you on that. Yeah, she's, I mean, she's just so effortlessly innovative. Like, I don't right. think she would know how to even write something that was sort of quote unquote mainstream or that was, you know, that you'd seen before. Like, there's just something so original about her yeah. voice and her take on things. When I, when I teach that stuff, I always call it beige against the machine. You know, like, <laughs> I, I don't want to read your book that sounds like 500 other books that I've already right. read. Like, right. I want to read the thing that can only come from your imagination. Totally. Like, that's the stuff that interests me the most. Totally. And I mean, I know lots of people like to read Whole Foods realism, but I ain't the guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's, it, and that's why, you know, often students or, you know, even people who pitch me an essay will say like, does this sound like a good idea for a story or for an essay? And it's like, that's, it's all in the execution. Like all right. the ideas have been taken. I mean, you know, there's never going to be anything that no one has ever written about before, but it's all like, how do you bring a different lens, a different perception, your yeah. own voice, your own, you know, the, the live wire of your brain to the same yeah. thing that many people, and that's literature is a dialogue. Like you're in dialogue with all the books through history that have been yeah. written about basically some of these same subject matters. Yep. Yeah, I had a teacher in college when the first day was like, hey, I know you guys are young and you want to feel like you're going to be doing all this postmodern and experimental stuff. And he held up a copy of Don Quixote and he goes, this is a postmodern book before that word ever existed. So anything you think you're going to do that's new, it's not new. <laughs>
<laughs> I was thinking about Max. <laughs> I was thinking about Maxine Hong Kingston when you were talking earlier, um, and I can't remember what you were saying that that made me think of her. But you know, she wrote the Woman Warrior in yep. something like 1971. I'm not sure exactly when, but it won you know the National Book Award for nonfiction that year. And in it, I mean, she writes about ghosts. She writes about shamans. She writes about relatives who may or may not have existed who may or may not have had babies, who may or may not have killed themselves. Like she, it's right. it's basically in many ways, a book of speculative fiction, but all through the lens of Maxine Hong Kingston trying to make sense of her life. And, oh, I remember because you were saying like, isn't just the lens of I, 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 like kind of dead in memoir. And it's interesting because I feel like memoir sort of began as this innovative, very different art form then, you know, the celebrity autobiography, I was born right. and blah, 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 you know, and, and then it became a more mainstream genre for a while. But now I think, you know, in the last 10 years or so, there's been more of a kind of return to this idea of it being you know, an imaginative leap, you know, that it's oh, not sure. just like, I'm going to tell you the, the, the real story, you know, it's not journalism, right. you know, it's, it's, there's always the filter of the author's mind and that right. sometimes in cases like the, the woman warrior, you can, you know, you could really go crazy with that. You can write about anything like the talking dogs, you know? Right. Well, the other, I mean, think about the seventies too, about what the work that Kathy Acker was doing and the work mm -hmm. that Didion was doing. Like there were some hip people doing nonfiction there. And Miller's maybe what we're also talking about is kind of the, the waffle iron machine of, of the last 25 years of publishing mm -hmm. uh, where they're, you know, they're trying to like recreate what was last season's success. So it becomes this kind of like, game of telephone that's consistently watering down artifacts with each subsequent iteration. <laughs> it's so true. I mean, like, well, I know you and I are both obsessed with Book of Daniel. And I often think, you know, I often think about the writers of the 70s, you know, the 80s, the 90s, and how many of them would probably be on indie presses now, who, you know, because yeah. they were doing such weird ass things that were in my opinion, brilliant, you know, but that would not have fit into kind of like corporate publishing, a big four, you know, type of, of vision. And if, if, if the book of Daniel was E.L. Doctorow's first book today, there's no way he would be a household name. I fully could not agree more. I yeah. mean, and yet I think it's, I think it's one of the greatest novels ever. Yeah. I written. mean, if I had to take two books, I mean, that would be one of them to my desert island, but the other one would be Baldwin's um, I know he's more famous for Go Tell It on the Mountain in Giovanni's Room, but for my money, it's all about another country. Oh my God, I love that book so much. I mean, yes. and then that's another one. Like it's it's slow and it's sleepy and he's writing from outside his experience and other race and other genders, all these things mm -hmm. that we're not supposed to be doing right now, which is its own conversation for probably another podcast. Sure, totally. But here he is breaking all those rules. And because he broke those rules, he made a transcendent work of art. Just the psychological depth too. I think, you know, you, those writers are really special. Those people who can take you so deep into the nuances of a brain where it's much more than like, you know, she felt angry when her mother hung up the phone. You know, it's like, it's so much more complex than that. I mean, I think that that's the thing probably that's made 
Jonathan Franzen famous, you know, it's like, I, I don't love everything he does, but he has a particular psychological depth of character that, yeah. you know, that he's really gifted at. And, you know, when, when you read that, like I always read that level of character development as kind of like, I'm, I'm gulping oxygen, you know, yes. because I feel like it's not in a lot of books, even a lot of great books, you know, for sure. For sure. Yeah, Francis, I've only read the corrections, but in that one uh, narrative, he certainly does what you're describing here. And Baldwin is just brilliant at it. And, and at what I was talking about earlier in terms of like, you know, having extremely like just raw, naked emotion that somehow is not maudlin or sentimental, right. you know, that when I read a writer and you were one of those writers who's able to do that and who can really push those feelings without making it hackneyed like that's a, a that's just a, an incredible gift like I remember every writer that I've ever read who I feel like has been able well, to do that that's a really nice thing to say and the other thing I would I would just add about you know kind of Baldwin and kind of emotional verisimilitude and emotional authenticity is that in his work like he wasn't interested in easy answers right like he gave his characters what all of us should be uh, aspiring toward he gave them the dignity of complexity that's right and like right now we live in this era where complexity doesn't seem like it's a wanted ingredient like we were like kind of looking for the binary the zero the one mm -hmm. the one and the zero um and what we're talking nostalgically about the 70s was a time when nuance and complexity was something that was championed. And that's not to say that a lot of artists right today aren't doing that. I just want it to be brought into the conversation that like, I think that's what we should all be striving toward, you know, to be as emotionally authentic to that one person's experience as we possibly can, because that's where empathy lives. Right. And that's the whole point of all this, right? As we use these books, like they're a conch shell. Right, and if you if we've done our job That's right as exactly the author, right. you hold the book up to your ear, and you can hear the rhythms of our very flawed, prodigal human heart. I yeah, mean, that's the beauty of it. You know, it's it's if it's not to make people feel less alone, um, you know, what is it for? Yeah, that's... I David, David Wallace said that the subtext of every page ever written was "I was alive too." <laughs> As an only Wallace could possibly say, right? <laughs> <laughs> fully, fully. <laughs> what else do we want to talk about? Well, I mean, I was going to ask you, um, you know, what what do you think, you know, for these future slim volumes? Like, I mean, you know, is there sort of a glimpse that you can give us of one of the things that, you know, you're kind of like currently obsessing on that you would love to I, I just, I hadn't been writing much prose this year. Um, and I actually just sent uh, Rob, your old man, uh, a little prose, a little like piece of flash nonfiction. Oh, cool. Um, where over the summer, I took my daughter to 7-Eleven and uh, this guy pulled a knife on us. And like, I went into this weird thing that I'd never experienced before, where it was like this unevolved anger. Like I felt like a chimp. Like I was I like full on devolved in the moment. Um, and I, all of a sudden, like he showed me the knife and I lost my temper and I, I was two hand choking him. 
I, my kid was right there watching, but I, I couldn't take my hands off of his neck. Like That's I saw that he had a weapon close to her and I didn't know what to do. Um, and the, the whole, the framing device of the little essay is that it's all taking place with my hands around his neck. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, that's like, that's like bullet in the brain. I mean, that's, yeah, that's really, that's for that's, sure. That sounds great. And so I think I might be uh, drawn right now to kind of like some, some micro moments. Uh, what, what are they going to add up to? I'm not totally sure yet. Um, but I think short, short feels right right now. Yeah. I would like to be ever able to say the sentence short feels right. I, um, oh God, I write, I, I write so overlong. It's insane. Like every essay I, I write, I'll be like, oh, I'm going to write a 1500 word essay, you know, and it's like 7,000 words. <laughs> Literally, it's hellish. But, but don't you think that that's probably to the betterment of the art and that it gives you a bunch of emotional and literal options and then you get to kind of cherry pick the greatest hits? Here's the thing, right? It's like, I mean, I, I, I hope so. Yes. Um, you know, I don't think I ever really write anything that's only about one thing. And I had right. this one experience with Red Book where they had, um, you know, said like, yeah, we want the story that you pitch, like, let's go write the story. And, you know, I wrote it and it was within their word guideline, which was itself a miracle, but they're like, well, okay, but can you take out this strain and this strain and make it just about <laughs> this? And so I tried and then they're like, okay, but how about, making it really only about one thing. And like, right. eventually I was like, I, I can't, I can't do that. Like everything has braided narrative. Everything yep. has kind of, you know, bits of the past and how it bears on the future and kind of parallel things going on. And so finally I just, you know, gave it to the rumpus and was like, <laughs> I'll take my kill fee. It's more than I get paid usually anyway for an essay. Right. So. Well, I think you and I try to be as limber and, and nimble with how we're architecturally arranging things. You know, like in, in Model Citizen, every chapter has one story in the past tense and one story in the present tense. And sometimes the, the, the juxtapositions or the, the, the kind of the collage elements between those two are very obvious, you know, like my daughter falls down the stairs in one chapter. So then I tell you about the time, like my friend knocked her front teeth out in front of me and I had mm -hmm. to carry her home. Mm -hmm. And then the, some chapters, the connections are a little bit more arcane, but I, I just love the idea about putting pieces together like tiles in a mosaic that at first you don't think that they're gonna work together until you have a chance to put them all down. Mm -hmm. And then you stand back and kind of look at this immaculate image that was obfuscated from you while it was in progress. It's really interesting because it's an echo chamber that, you know, it, it builds on itself. Like I published the piece about your friend who knocked her teeth out and you carried right. her home. And, and, you know, at that point, this other thing that echoed it hadn't even happened yet. It's like our life is waiting for a ping pong ball to bounce back into yeah. certain moments. And, and when you were telling the story about the 7-Eleven, it's sort of like, you know, when you were a younger man, you were a fighter, you know, and right. now no one who knows you can even imagine that, you know, but, right. but like that, you know, there's an echo there. I don't know if it's in the essay, but it's like, you know, that's like this long forgotten version of yourself. I mean, since I've been reading your work for so long and I've known you yep. for so long, but um, yeah, it's just fascinating. That's probably or arguably the hardest thing we do as memoirists is to, as reality is this formless thing. 
and we have to bring form and we have to kind of create shape that doesn't exist. Right. Uh, and we, we empower these connections that might not even be real, <laughs> but they sure seem real to us at the they, time. Don't they, they seem real, right? You know, and that's <laughs> the thing. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and there's, and also I think like the concept that there isn't an ending, like in, unless you literally write a book and then you die two days later, you know, it's always a continuation. Well, do me a favor. Don't die two days from now. Can we agree on that? <laughs> I will try very hard. Same to you. Yeah, it's been it's been super fun talking to you today, Gina. This has been a so awesome. blast. Um, thank you so much for sharing uh, your work with us and for your thoughtful conversation about um, memoir and craft. Uh, again, today's guests were Joshua Moore, author of Model Citizen, and Gina Frangello, author of Blow Your House Down. You can order copies of both books at skylightbooks.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.